Welcome to Da Conversatorios. This conversatorio is from the 2015 Caminos Festival, and it's titled The Bicultural Mind. In this conversatorio, Aluna invited a group of researchers and academics to discuss how performance can articulate the condition of being bilingual and of crossing cultural boundaries. Does being bilingual means you think differently from others? Different how? How does this affect your approach when you are a performer bringing work from one language and culture into another? Is language a tool, an action, or a behavior? Our panelists shared some of their research in these areas and then opened up to a conversation with the festival audience. Our panelists are Carla Melo, a researcher, director, and performer who is invested in creating and thinking critical about the intersections of performance, social engagement, and activism. Maria Constanza Guzman, a translator and associate professor in the School of Translation and the Department of Hispanic Studies at York University. Elena Basile, translator, artist, and scholar. She teaches at the University of Toronto and York University, where her research and poetic practice focuses on the politics of feminist, queer, migrant poetics. Margaret Manson, a research associate at York University's Center for Education and Community. Sasha Kovach is an artist and performance scholar. She creates theater with Ars Mechanica, and her dissertation focuses on the performance history of E. Pauline Johnson. Bruce Gibbons Fell, a Chilean playwright and an ensemble member of Aluna's Interpretation Lab. Marta Marin Dominé, a professor, translator, writer, documentary filmmaker, and the director of the Center for Memory and Testimony Studies at Wilfrid Laurie University. More information about all the panelists is available in the show notes. Throughout the conversation, you'll hear speakers refer to the lab. That would be Aluna Theater's Interpretation Lab a year-and-a-half-long experimental workshop exploring how to break the barriers of language through image, action, technology, and translation. They performed and presented research as part of the festival that year. Let's start the conversation. I'd like to start by, I just picked up um, a tale of monstrous extravagance by Johnson Highway. One of the quotes from the book is, speaking one language, I submit, is like living in a house with one window. <laughs> so an experience of, of language. Uh, as a translator, I'm I'm a translator uh, also, and which I shared with many many of us here in the room. Uh, and I think um, one of the first lessons for translators is we, we have to debunk the, the theories that we ourselves know. And as soon as we start to translate, just like as soon as we start to use language in a meaningful way, we realize it's not a vehicle. It's not a system. It's it's it's, and it's fundamentally situated. I thought it was so beautiful how Billy today, when he was speaking, he said, you have to understand, to understand your ancestors, you have to understand who, what's the history of, of that subject, who spoke, what's his history. So what, what an approach. To la- our, our approach to language would be so different, uh, and to national languages and language policies would, would be so different if we could see language that way. So, um, so it is situated. It's 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 situated socially. It's situated politically. It's ideologically situated. So when we're talking about Spanish, Spanish in Toronto, Spanish in Canada, where is it? Where is the position vis-a-vis what in this this uh, environment uh, of multilingualism? Uh, so it's situated historically as well, and it's situated in the body. Embodied experience, it's a gendered experience, it's a racialized experience, it's an experience of, of class, of all, all these different things, right? So, um, so we're always sort of battling between way, ways in which we learn languages and, and the theories of language that we've been schooled with, and how to undo uh, those theories. And, and I think you've mentioned decolonize, how do you decolonize our minds to really be able to understand languages embodied as historical as part of our own subjectivity. I've been trying in, in my work, and I quickly have to, I've been trying to think, I'm, I'm Colombian, and I'm an, I'm an academic, like uh, Carla said, I'm a translator, I'm a migrant, I'm a Latina in, in, North, in North America, all of a sudden we became, we become all these things, and, and they get all mixed and intertwined, and they become languaged in a way, and 
through all those things that you've been doing, right? Like, like that. And um, so I've been thinking of the, the question of experiences of translation in the Americas, and what it would be to understand translation as an experience of the Americas. And I think that heterogeneous, multiple, plural, and, but what would be, what, what would be in common if we look at the Americas? What's, what's the experience of translation? And I think that one of the things is that, that is fundamental to understanding translation in the Americas is the fact that, like, as Aníbal Quijano, the Peruvian sociologist said, it's within the colonial matrix, matrix of power. So that is, regardless of what language we're speaking, right? So how do we understand Spanish in Colombia, or how do we understand all these different language practices that are part and are imbricated with our colonial history? And so the, the question, I think, for this session of uh, bicultural epistemology is if we think about it in terms of the colonial matrix of power, we think about epistemic, epistemic worlds colliding, and, and we, in the present, today in Toronto, as subjects, and by definition, we are, we are in a position, by using language, we're positioning ourselves in relation to that colonial history and to the aftermath and to the, to the current legacy of that colonial history. I will pick up on, on something that, that um, Carla was saying, which was just to think about the border. I've been thinking, I think that the border is one of the symptoms, one of the places where you see language as a symptom of coloniality and of, of, the, of, the, of the wound, of the colonial wound of the, and the manifestation in language. And you can see you know, border languaging practices throughout the Americas, both within border locations, such as you know, the, one of the most documented, the US-Mexico border, but you also see them, and also, some less documented, such as Portuñol in the north of Uruguay, for example. When I recommend to everybody the work of a contemporary poet, Fabian Severo, who writes in that Portuñol and talks about the pain of being that kind of split subject that doesn't belong to the identity formations of any of the nation, any of the two nations, that would be shared with Anzaldúa's work. For example, with that of so many authors that are in the border, that were on the border between the states and Mexico, and so um, one of the one of the characteristics of if we see language as emerging, as situated rather than learned in, in those border spaces, uh, what I'd like to propose the, the notion of languaging, which is a notion that many of these people have talked about when they talk about border language practices, and that the Chileans Matunana and Marena have also spoken about, which is language as practice and as embodiment. That is, that we're not no longer talking of, as of language as something that exists, but as languaging as new, as creative, and as unfolding within you know, our own practices. So I've been thinking, how do we language as a verb we language in Toronto? How do as Latin American migrants, what are the language and practices that we have that mark us and that let us, that it, by which we are symptoms of a colonial history and these um, contemporary permutations? So that is a notion that I, I wanted to raise in particular because I think that uh, the, the, the experiments in the lab have been Experiments with languaging at different at different levels, <coughs> and in some cases, uh, maybe the two languages were used more as vehicles. That is taken for what they are, and translation was discrete from one discrete language into another. And in some exercises, it was more language practice emerging, right? And so I, I think that for performance, if in Toronto as a political tool and as a statement, is languaging as historicized and situated, historicized and situated can be um, there as a problem from the beginning. The, the way it's been here in the labs, I think, um, it's, uh, it's, 
it's, it's going to be a, a space of, for four years, it's going to be a space of, of production of new poetics, new languages, new theatrical languages, new languages as such. This space has been incredibly rich, has been extraordinarily multilingual, productive, and um, these are some of the things that I wanted to share with you. And I'd like to invite uh, uh, peers to also share maybe their impressions or any thoughts or notions of I'd like to hear what you guys have to think. I've been here all week, you know, with the lab. I'm very curious because you all come from different places. The psychology is very interesting. And the, you know, the bilingual mind, the bicultural mind, when actors are accessing things, for example, or it just gets mixed with everything. We have, um, in the previous session, uh, conversatorio, they were talking about gender and language and how in Cree it's not as in English or Spanish. Um, that's very interesting. Like for a performer, you see them performing in a very different way, it affects your body. Makes you behave differently, right? I think yeah. we talk a lot about like the performative language as performative, right? The, the whole Jail Austin idea of the speech act, but then just hearing this concept of language itself making you behave differently. Like when when there was that conversation in the last conversatorio about, you know, in Cree, it, it, the language itself calls for respect. It has a different relationship to the idea of respect. So to me, that was something that's super interesting in how it, it, it's not just the speech act, it's not just the words that make us act differently, it's the language itself that makes us act in a completely different way, in a different relationship with each other. Bill Austin writes about these speech acts, right? So this is like when you go to grad school and then you're like, what do I really know? Um, <laughs> about these things that I've read. So I think he talks particularly about um, it in the context of like a wedding. Mm -hmm. So when you say I do in this particularly, it makes, it, it affects your action or it should is it is an, uh, an action and makes you active so just to me I mean we, we, I've always understood it as this kind of discrete thing there are these speech acts but to think of different languages as choreographing these complete different actions and and action as relationship that to me is something that's worth perhaps mining a little bit I'm just starting, I've just started to take Gengeha um, lessons, Mohawk, at the Native Canadian Center. And it's a completely different, I mean, I'm like monolingual person. My father is, you know, Hungary, a Hungarian refugee. My mother is Dutch. And I'm there trying to learn Gengeha. And it's, a, it's, I mean, it makes you act, you have to act differently. Um, there's just sounds that you've never explored in your, in the back of your throat, like glottal sounds. I've, I've never had to make glottal sounds. In Hungarian, you kind of make more glottal sounds. But uh, yeah, anyway, so there's things like that. I think that might be, that made me think of it, like Austin differently. Yeah, I feel extremely honored to be here. Uh, someone who uh, uh, is no particular, I'm not specialized in theater in any shape or form. Uh, but what I do do in some of my own work and what I realize, I, I keep realizing what by working on uh, translation, multilingualism, and I've done this recent project in translation in focus, and it's more, uh, it was a kind of participatory, uh, kind of democratic work uh, with uh, an experiment in uh, mapping Toronto, uh, mapping Surprise of Toronto as done by uh, people's experience of how um, we called it making place out of space. The ability to sort of how do you go about thinking about the city as this uh, layered uh, place of settlement and displacement, an ongoing historical layers of settlement and displacement. Um, and what I, keep, I kept bumping up against them, this particular experiment, but also previous things, is language is never just language. Never, ever. Even like what we learn, uh, what came today via both the first panel, the first conversatorio, and the second conversatorio, is 
language is not just embedded in bodies, embedded transgenerationally, is embedded in patterns of behavior that you learn while suckling at the breast, literally. Sort of, you, you go, you learn, you learn how to say hello and goodbye, please and thank you, while you're learning also the protocols of your own culture of how you do certain things. And that is ongoing. Um, and it's ongoing through a life and you can uh, when we when we do the written part or anything that's there's always there's just a slice um, a very narrow slice that we get uh, out of these things um, the big problems that we have when we when we are in particularly talking about the colonial met or the several colonial matrix and what seems to come from both uh, watching the in life last night and then uh, this was, we are also in a given state of woundedness. There's no two, two ways about it, of displacement. Um, that is, marine life was particularly interesting because it's a displacement that is both profoundly cultural, but it was so embedded in also the environmental issue and that strong, the image of water and the the womb-like thing happening. There was this, what captured me about the play was uh, at one point, uh, at the end of the play, uh, who's the, the, the character, that's the, the protagonist, the woman protagonist, she says, uh, when she's gone back to Mexico, and uh, she said, oh, what is that word for home that is not home, it's not in any language? And I think we are in this, particular situation in, in many ways, whether we are uh, settler colonial, and like whatever kind of heritage we are, we are in this place of trying to figure out a name for a home that is not a home, that needs to feel like home, we get to make it home. And living with sort of these little shreds and shards of languages. Uh, the other thing that uh, I, that really sh struck me about uh, Monique's uh, moment of talk um, and also last night, the relation, for example, of the second generation of someone who's lost the language, who has, however, this uh, either th it's because of a language that has been shamed into non-being uh, and yet this desire to retain it, the shame of not being able to retain it, uh, the the ongoing need to put some kind of political energy on it. Sometimes you get fanatic about it at some point because you need to uh, to protect it from elsewhere. I think uh, kind of historically um, or situationally, uh, geographically, where we are, it seems to me we're in a place where. Um, Sort of, we are at the place where the acknowledgement of the wound, the working of the trauma, because it is a trauma, is in tension with this desire for that dynamic, transformative, mestiza border. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, we are dealing with hybridization all the time. Um, but you can't jump to hybridization without acknowledging the wound, without having the moment of. And that kind of requires, um, I mean, it was said very beautifully in the previous panel, requires respect, requires time, requires also protecting the sacred moment. I think the part um, that always strikes me, which is why I'm interested in, in intercultural exchange, uh, is, is the sense of loss. And, and you're raising that question of home, where, where is home, which is a sort of universal question that's, uh, I think has been explored in a number of different ways, and it, it's, it's related to hybridity. Um, but it's, it's also, if you want to relate it to language as well, it, it's also the loss of what is the, the sort of sense of identity that one has when you use a particular language, you live in a particular Place, you're related to a particular set of, of customs and beliefs. Um, and, and then you, you arrive at this border that you need to cross. Um, I haven't crossed that border in terms of working uh, 
in theater, um, <clears throat> I cross that border more in terms of uh, learning to live in different places uh, and then thinking about what the implications of the border might be when, when it comes to learning. Uh, I'm in education primarily, so I'm, I'm always interested in teaching and learning. Uh, but at the same time, um, I've had the opportunity to teach in the uh, Drama Studies Program London. And what drew me there was having this opportunity to explore intercultural performance practices. And again, it came back to the sense of you know, the, the border that's suggested when you begin to think about intercultural performance practices. Um, in, in my own experience, um, I'm African. Um, I was born in Africa, and uh, I, I grew up speaking English, of course, but I also grew up speaking two African languages, which of course, now I don't speak at all. Um, the one was uh, Chinyanja, which is uh, the language of, one of the languages of Malawi, which is where I was born. The other was uh, Shana, which is one of the languages of Zimbabwe, where I spent much of my life before I moved here. So to move somewhere where your language, your language doesn't come with you, um, much of what you knew about the, the country and the experiences that you've had uh, doesn't come with you. And then of course when you return, which is always a familiar story for those of us who return, what you remember isn't there anymore. So to me the profound aspect of, of the border is how one crosses into that very uncertain space and actually begins to uh, find something that may be related to home or may, may give you some sense of um, are there ways in which I can participate in this space and then begin to contribute to the space and then perhaps uh, begin to feel that there's a sense of relationship with this space. And, and to me, that's, that's the border. I think the one thing I have come to accept is, firstly, I will never find home, so home will be where I am. So there's the performative aspect of uh, who I am is what I am in each of uh, the contexts in which I find myself when I'm interacting. And then there's the sense that if you take that into, into a, a sort of theatre setting of the performance <coughs> artist or well, let's think about the, the artist who creates, be it the director or the choreographer, um, the actor, um, the set designer and all, all of the pieces that go into that. The, what is being expressed there is related in some ways to a particular cultural set of understandings. But the possibility of the intercultural is that now you can begin to do some of that work in exchange with others. So you, you begin to approach um, others and then this, this becomes an aspect of intercultural performance uh, and, and this, this work across borders of I encounter others, I encounter others whom I don't, don't really know. Um, perhaps I can come to know them in terms of the way in which we work together. Uh, that may be through linguistic uh, structures or it may be through performative structures, or it may be through different interpretations that we make of particular contexts in which we, we have lived. But I think we're all trying to make sense of where do we find ourselves when we're, we've, we've lost something that belongs to us or is part of us, and, but we see traces of it in where we are and if we're able to reach out to others and work with them, bring those traces together to create something, now perhaps we can uh, create a piece, and in, in some cases, theoretically, this is known as hybridization, or the hybrid form. But I think what happens in, in theater here in Toronto has, moves beyond that hybrid form. And I, I think of the three pieces I saw last night. Uh, and I think of the work, uh, Bea and Trevor, that, that you've been doing together. And I, I, I don't see it as hybrid performance because I think in part what you're doing is you're bringing together um, 
creative people who find themselves in a context where they they want to represent themselves, but they also understand that there's a certain loss. And then how do we work across that loss and find some way to express our understandings uh, in, in a way that um, recognizes difference, that engages with difference, that works with indifference to see how can that give us uh, a more complex um, sort of interpretation or idea of who we are in this particular context. So to come back to the borders, this notion of, of the border, I think that it is, um, it's a point at which sort of cultural experiences, cultural understandings, the sort of specificities of, of cultures can also um, engage with each other and inform each other and then create which I think is what happens here in Toronto so then we're, we're creating a culture also that is really very present in this time and place because that's that's where it arose from but it's drawn on all of these other knowledges and practices and understandings uh, and it, it's sort of grounded in this, this um, capacity that people have to say I, I will I will engage with you as other but the, the other is not that we're separate it's that we're we're, we're curious about each other we, we think we can learn about each other we can learn from each other I was not expecting to to bring psychoanalysis on the table on the floor but sometimes <laughs> you are inviting me to do so I am <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it in a very characteristic way first of all bad news because according to psychoanalysis and it will take that long um, once we enter the dimension of language so once we start speaking or recognizing speech and language, we've lost. Once we enter language, we've lost a part of us that cannot be ever expressed to any other language. And this is the very fascinating idea about, because also this perception of language is the language is a master, and but nobody obeys it, which is very interesting. I'm not talking obviously about grammar, about talking from gestures to tone of voice, the words that we like the best, those words that never come to our minds, but we know them and we know. Good news, because we've lost. We've used language in a way to make something that we have lost and will never recover. Better news, this is, by definition, desire. To look for something that we've never managed to find. So, I completely agree with all of you, and you've said it, language is never language, it's something more. Might be a, a modality to, uh, of relation with the other, might be a, a form of demanding love as well, because going a little bit further than speech act is when, when you say I do, according to Lacan, because we are expecting somebody else saying, I do too, but you love me or not? <laughs> I want to hear that, right? This is a way of also expressing the desire to be loved, which is after all what we do in our own professions, uh, no matter what, right? From, from a, a construction worker to an academic. I'm part of the bilingual ensemble, and I'm the only one, there are three actors, well, four, Rosa uh, took a break, and the only one who's not an actor, or the only bad actor, if you want to put it that way too, uh, or oversized Muppets. Um, oh, oh. And then for me, it's very interesting what happens in their brains. Very, very interesting. Because you said uh, there is this desire, but desire also has an instinctive, pre-linguistic kind of root. The desire. You know, you know more. Like the desire, the desire for like. And we kind of construct, and we construct about that language, and then we have bilingual actors who do these constructions in different ways at different moments, and then they have to act, and then it's very different um, when they're acting in Spanish or in English or in French. 
and then according to it depends on for me it depends kind of on the scene and then we try to create these exercises where we calibrate them in a way um, and there's a lot of negotiation I was precisely not going to talk about psychoanalysis, but to do, to 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 mention to share with you because I'm working on, on that. I'm very interested, and I think it touches uh, issues related to performance and acting. One of them is, I'm sorry to be so boring, the technical definition of bilingual. Bilingual is a person who speaks in more than one language without noticing it. Technically speaking, yeah, bilinguistics. It's like, okay, you even, you you saw a movie, but you cannot say if you saw it in this language or, or this other, right? They are very few bilingual, technically speaking, and it's very interesting. And why I bring in this? Because I think the difference between a bilingual who has integrated these, these um, languages as part of a skin, if you wanted to put it poetically, and a person who speaks more than one language is that for me, and this is my hypothesis, is that the bilingual person has many voices in her head, whereas the one that manages to speak in more than one language keeps having only one. And this is very important when translating and very important, I guess, from acting. Translating, my own experience, uh, I go to my voice of the language that I consider mine, and I have all the treasure of the languages how my grandmother was saying that. How, how is this said? If I work the reverse, using English or French or another language, I don't have this voice. I'm mute. My <coughs> reference is a text, so I work with voices, one voice and with a text, which is an altogether different experience. One doesn't go through the skin. The other one is knowledge. Second point, and I'll be very brief, uh, that I wanted to bring here, and you have mentioned it. Uh, when we speak in a language that is not ours, the notion of own language is very <laughs> problematic as well. But <laughs> let's, yeah, let's keep it like this for now. Um, my exactly, <laughs> my language. Uh, anyway, the thing is that our pitch of voice changes very much. Mine, mine is crazy. Right? And I think this is very interesting and it's maybe related to some sort of tension or I don't want to psychologize this. Uh, psychoanalysis is not psychology. And, and what type of manifestation is that, that we change the pitch of voice? And it's not only, I guess, because we imitate the pitch of voices of the speakers there. I noticed, for, for instance, that female uh, English speakers have a tone of voice slightly higher than Mediterranean female voices, I don't know if you would agree or not, right? But it's not only culture, which is also learned, but it's something else. Something is intentional around here. Or maybe I would go further and say that it's just here and the rest of the body is not integrated in the language. It's, that's the frontier, that's the border. I need a passport here. It's a checkpoint, I would say. And my last comment is accents. And you might not guess why I'm interested in accents, right? <laughs> <laughs> and because I think those are fascinating. Um, it's not only because people with accents are a little bit neurotic, like me, like, uh, and we don't manage to, to polish. It's because it's, again, another checkpoint. Uh, the accent is the trace of something that keeps going there and does not want to go invisible. Contrary to uh, the way we um, study traces in archaeology, is these traces are um, prints, marks of something that has gone in the past. The trace in length, the accent is the trace, the persistence, presence of something that is there working with you when you speak in a language that is not yours. And I think this is very interesting, and especially for you actors that you are just call and say, you have to speak in different languages, you have to polish your own language if you come from other um, linguistic um, issues. But uh, wh why we have, wh what is that? In, in the, the accent is another checkpoint, and it's also say, I'm here. I'm here. Uh, don't let me go. It's, a it's resistant. It's resistant. Disappears. So, thank you so much. This is uh, right up the alley of all of those things I'm working on. That's my research as well. <laughs> um, 
where does the border exist, which ties mm -hmm. into the thing you were just asking about what is our own language, because interestingly, again, for going back to Gloria and Angela, when you look at what she meant by hybridity, and again, for her it's really intra-cultural, not just intercultural, mm -hmm. because those cultures are existing within her, um, which is a different positionality, right? So across this whole week, it's been fantastic, because nearly everyone in this room and everyone who's been in this room is coming to that positioning across very different entry points and experiences. It's very different to have grown up in a certain language and arrive as an adult in a secondary space. It's a very different experience of language and culture and where those connecting spaces are. So of course it's, it's very distinct, but um, I just kind of want to throw it in there when we talk about intracultural and what can happen with languages because again, there is loss and it's not to, to not talk about loss, but again, kind of this is perhaps my own personal experience as a trilingual who grew up trilingual, my experience of where I access, for instance, English is my third language, but currently it's my dominant one. And that's a very interesting question about dominance and access and space for creative thinking within different languages. Um, so I just kind of want to kind of posit that as a, as a different space. And again, um, today when we're talking about that, how that also, in a very nice way, I think, dispels a lot of myths around you know, the monolithicness of culture and language as a kind of a priori somewhere in the past, especially when we're talking, for instance, in, in things like Spanish, for instance, right? So when we access language, and as in the interpretation lab, the actors have seen there's regionalisms, there's specificities, there's lots of clashes happening in the room, in the access to what that Spanish is, how it acts, what it means, what a word does or doesn't do. Um, and so for me, that's a really, maybe another way to kind of just open up another entry point to this discussion, that there is loss, there is border, um, and then there are the kind of strange creatures that are in the third space, right? And the third space has been theorized as a 21st century situation around language, language and the inhibiting of, like how one language inhibits another, but what that means is not necessarily one-to-one. -one. And cognitive science has found that if you do speak more than one language, even your monolinguistic access to language is no longer the same as a monolingual access to language. Go figure how and what they're doing, but just to throw that out there, so that means that it's not the same. So even when you return to Spanish, it's not as a monolingual Spanish no, person, right? Which, again, is just... Mm -hmm. The notion of border um, I think uh, as immigrants, because I'm an immigrant, is my uh, I'm a firstborn here, and I don't speak my parents' language, and that always did feel like a loss. And when I went to the Netherlands for the first time, particularly Friesland, I immediately, when I in the land, felt mm -hmm. home, like I never felt here, even though I'm born here, and love where I come from. Uh, which is not Toronto, um, but the but I have worked a lot uh, in theater over the last twenty years uh, with Monique, with Erica, with Center for Indigenous Theater. I ran Native Earth for a while, and I never once I it just occurred to me now encountered the notion of borders in 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 um, Indigenous theater. So, land, territory, story. And that's the other thing, language, story, in theater. So, as, as I mean, we talk about blockages when we're performers, right? Um, and, and, and as actors, you learn to breathe into this mysterious place that may be the place beyond borders <laughs> or accessing some kind of memory of being an infant before you learned a language and lost all that capability, like that capability that we apparently have uh, to learn any language when we're born, right? So, and then I just, just in terms of when you were describing all the creative people who come together to, uh, to um, stage a play which is actually acting out a story, and story, of course, is always evolving and helps us to understand who we are in relation to each other and also is always a transformative, right? You're acting out a trans... A good play is a play in which transformation happens over struggle, right? So 
You never mentioned, you mentioned the director, the actors, the designers, and then that playwright. And because you're all so fascinated with border, and I don't know what border, like how you, whether that's been defined, I'm not an academic, right? But, and, and why the, the notion of border is so um, interesting for, for those of us who have some kind of Euro connection. I mean, my family grew up very close to the border with Germany during World War II, and, and so my, my families were occupied, and I'm fascinated with how being occupied you know, affected them as people, and uh, you know, and anyway, so, and yet the languages are very close between, you know, my mother's language and the language that was across the border. Anyway, I just wanted to throw out some of those observations as a theater worker, and I'm getting a lot too from, I'm assuming you're all academics, for the most part. I write plays. You're a playwright, okay. So I haven't met you yet. But I, I, I managed to understand everything they say. I do not understand it. Well, listening to it was fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. Can I, can I just re respond to the to the the border question, and and of course the important aspect of of the playwright, um, because I, I was thinking of some of the work that I've seen that that's arisen in in ensemble situations mm -hmm. where the, the stories arise out of the collective story. But yes, the, the playwright is, is, is the person who gives shape to that. Um, but to go, go to the, the question of the border, that, that is something that, that fascinates me particularly because of my life situation. But um, I'm thinking of the Verdecchia's Fronteras Americanas. Um, and to me, his explorations in the border there became so interesting because he, he has uh, you know, himself and then, and then his, his alter ego. So the, the crossing of the border can be both a, a deep loss and a reflection and a, and a return, a constant return to sort of where you were before you encountered the border. Or the border can be, you know, this, this uh, brash, determined step across that space and I will now take on, you know, the, this, this other persona. But it's this combination of the loss and the searching and uh, how, how do you construct something that you can then participate in. And, and, and that's, that, that's a way for me to talk about what I see, what I think I see happening in, in the sort of work, again, that, that you're doing at, at, at Luna and, and a number of other theater companies, where, where there's, there's this in, intentional interest in, you know, what, what might happen if we come together and, and, and bring our practices and ideas and, and experiences together and see, in fact, you know, what they produce, what they put together. And, and that, to me, is, is one, one way of thinking of crossing the border, because you're, you're literally stepping into that space but you're actually going to create something that, that pushes the border or spreads the border or changes the border. But that, that in part is what interests me about the border. In the case of language and languages and translations in particular, uh, we, we come from ideologies of language. I think it's raised with theories about language and, and, and about identity. And so we believe in there, there's such a thing, or we schooled into thinking that there is such a thing as going back to a Colombian, right? And a Colombian speaks one language, and that language is Spanish. And then they, that's one thing, right? And it's fixed, and it's finished, and you can comprehend it, right? You just, you just have to go to school a little more and read a little more, and then you can, and that's finished, and, that, and that's resolved. And I think that that's a, there's, there's countless problematic questions about that ideology, doesn't see two way language, it considers it non-hybrid, all languages are hybrid, but we, we belong to ideologies of Eurocentric ideologies of language that construct them as pure, and contact with other languages as contamination of that purity, which mm -hmm. is very problematic when you put it next to notions of race, right? So I, I, I found it fascinating, Billy was talking today about his learning English and how it took so long to 
be comfortable to, to, to be able to express it and to communicate. Eventually, to translate into English. Okay. So we, th those are idioms by, by which we define ourselves as lack, as, as, as missing something, right? And as immigrants, then we're always in the negative because there's the, the assimilation of the ideology forces us to become that ideology, right? So the notion of the border subverts all these things, right? And it's not something physical that we cross, but we are also, maps are imposed on us and maps were imposed on indigenous peoples in Canada. If you, if you think of the map as a technology of violence and domination, the map, the, the violence of the map and of the, of the boundary as constructed. So the, what I find it so, so productive is precisely to work within that crisis, because it is, the, it is a wound, just like we were saying in Saint Society Land. It's a wound, a wound, it's always already uh, painful and, and, and unequal. So how do we work within that space? Right? So it, it, I can't tell you it's here or there, or it starts here and it ends there. Toronto is a border space. We can do border thinking in Toronto, definitely, by, by letting all these you know, practices and, and experiences. I wanted to respond to the both comments. Uh, and again, thinking while we're talking about the border, one of its um, productive to think of the border as event rather than or both spatially and eventfully because border can just come down there, there can be censorship there can be moments that just can fix all of a sudden and and they produce wounds or they can come up imperceptibly uh, through schooling through uh, you know learning uh, to navigate you know what language through uh, you know from going to family, to school, to peer group, etc. What is more important at what particular stage and what you should just keep out of the frame and whatnot. Those are borders um, and they happen. They happen or you also make them happen depending on you know, what you want or not want to transgress at any particular moment. With this, I wanted to speak a little bit about that question of the, the dominance, the, the, the trilingual, bilingual, what have you. And go back to what Martha was saying uh, around you know, that question of you know, the technical bilingual. And then uh, I, I, I think, again, we, we are somewhat infused with, yeah, Eurocentric epistemologies and Eurocentric um, language habits, particularly English has a, a whole set of language habits that are about uh, anal analytical parsing, categorizing, um, that tends to uh, privilege epistemologically, um, yes, sort of it's more important to, to categorize rather than tell the story of. And we keep going back to telling the story. When, when you tell the story of, the bilingual becomes something other than just the bilingual. Um, I, I could say that at different points in your life, you are more bilingual than other points in your life. Um, and you're navigating different languages. Uh, and then, can I tell a story? <laughs> I'm thinking of my own upbringing. I'm uh, Anglo-Italian, born of English mother and Italian father in southern Italy, um, middle class. Uh, raised from my mother, just arrived in, in, in Italy uh, in the 70s. She spoke no Italian, so I actually, up until where I was four, I always spoke English. Um, then I kind of realized I had to go to school, was going to school. Italian was what was uh, spoken, but not just Italian, it was also the local dialect, Barese. And Barese was the dialect of my peers. I had to figure out that one. Uh, in conjunction with figuring out the Italian of school. And eventually, I remember exactly making at one point a decision to leave English behind because it just was not relevant at that particular stage. At some point, it was more relevant to actually, when I speak good dialect, to make it with my peers and not get bullied on anything. Um, and I can't say which one of that, that part of me is authentic, and I think this is 
you know, you have those moments of dominance. And then coming to Canada, a whole other set, you know, of thought, okay, I'm going, I don't want to go to the States, I want to go to Canada because at least I speak the language, okay, we had, couldn't understand a word of what people were saying because it, it was uh, a different accent. It was a different everything. And also, I realized very quickly, I needed to navigate the city, I needed to learn how to read Now magazine before I could read all of the academics. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, no, there, was no book, there was no dictionary for that. Absolutely no dictionary. What is it? I remember mean, this one point. Someone at the post office tell me, show me the dough. Uh, the dough? What, what do you mean by dough? I said, show me the money. Something. I was like, ah. So with this one, what I'm saying with this is um, the story, this is, a, this is my story of languaging. And we're all kind of constantly engaging with the stories of languaging. The importance and the insistence on practicing mindful uh, listening to what's coming from the other, that curiosity. It requires also at times acknowledging that the, you know, that sort of in the everyday encounters, there's these moments when things just block, the block comes, and you can't do anything about it unless you sort of start moving around or acknowledge that something it's happened. You know, we talked a lot in the lab about how, to go back to what we were talking about before, but how our bodies change depending on what language we're speaking. And what Sasha said earlier as well, like you have to start making different sounds and they come from different places. And I think that as people that are in tune with their bodies, whether we're performers or, or academics or whatever, somebody that's paying attention to what's happening, that's what informs the, the, the physicality of the language as well. Um, and it is because we, they sit in different places. They, 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 they come out in different ways, and, and you have to access parts of your physical body to be able to speak them um, in different ways. So you know, borders are not just lines drawn in the sand, not just forms of violence, and not just you know, they're they're they're, they're also bridges. I think in a lot of ways, in certain countries in South America, you know, Bolivians and Argentinians sound a lot more alike in the north than so many people in the to that sort of person in Santa Argentina. Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's opportunities for cross-border um, relationships that maybe people in the same country can't share because of what's around. This is something else we was talking about in the Native Earth panel today. The dialects of Cree cross-country change based on what's around you. And it's, it might be a different language, but you adapt because these are the maybe not so much assimilation, but it's, 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 it's about how, what you have to, what, what you treat every day, the people that you talk to uh, from another tribe or from another community or whatever it may be. Um, so there's these, the, it's evolution at the end of the day. I just thought that the question at the back was really interesting and that this, this panel, I mean, we're here to talk about bicultural epistemologies and we immediately turn to the border as this kind of symbol to think through biculturalism. So that to me is what is so compelling about your question, because that to me is an epistemology, right? That we constantly use the story of the border. I mean, as soon as we started talking, it was like, Guillermo, here we go, right? Like that story, <laughs> that story of the border, the border wound, which is in Verdecchia's work, it's, it's there, right? Like I see the, the whole play kind of like, it, Kind of goes across my eyes when we have this conversation. It's statement he makes. Yeah, it's, and it's a statement he makes, and yeah, and and I'm and I'm interested some way in that that story because it's such a dramatic, compelling way to structure any knowledge around biculturalism, right? It's immediately dramatic. It's immediately compelling because it's the space where where it's like you have to, right? It's like this thing that happens. So it's a, it's a drama. And particularly with the individual I'm studying, who's this uh, Mohawk English woman <coughs> in the 19th century, um, so many contemporary historians want to see her performance of her biculturalism as this border, as her constantly navigating between the border of her Mohawk and English identity. 
And that is the history that, that we know of Pauline Johnson, right? That is the image that I see. And yet, when you actually start to know about her performance and read about her performance, she was never performing her own identity, ever. She was performing a Plains Cree women. Occasionally, she was performing a Gisto, which is like some sort of version, maybe, of her Mohawk-ness. And then in the second half of her performance, she was doing these vaudeville um, acts, like, like where she was performing a lunatic, uh, sorry, a, a woman who was invited to a lunatic asylum to go to a ball. And it's, it's perfect 19th century stuff. So I'm, I'm really kind of interested in the way in which that, that idea of the border, which is such a productive way to think through so much, and I think like in the 90s, and in like the, it's really been a pervasive way to think through biculturalism. But it is a way to think through biculturalism. And I think what you're maybe asking for are what are those other ways? And particularly with if we're thinking about indigeneity, I wonder if the, the border is necessarily the best kind of image or symbol or, or epistemology really to think through those questions. And just, just to bring it back, that I went to the border because we were talking about, well, how do we, you know, how do we negotiate between, you know, being a hybrid, being a, 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 an immigrant, and, not, and then, you know, not ever fitting in, or, you know, and then going back and not ever, not ever fitting back to that mm -hmm. place of origin. You know, any kind of miscegenation or, you know, or, or bilingualism, there's a kind of, you know, contamination or, you know, that you become less than. Or like when they said that word, de-authenticating. Right, right, right. That right, to me right. is so interesting, that idea right. that, that we can think of that contamination as what she was talking about with de-authentication, right, which right. is something that I think indigenous artists consistently have to come up against. So it comes from a particular particular indigenous um, setting, but it is very you know very particular to that area. So I'm sure that here there would be a, you know another term that would be more. The, the word honesty came up as well in that yeah. panel, in the translation, in the accessing in the body, like honesty. That that was very was the being like the authentic part. Which I think is why like the psychoanalysis is so interesting. I was like, whoa! Mm -hmm. Just because that's <laughs> usually how I am around like in panels. I'm just like, everyone knows everything. But um, <laughs> but to complicate that, right? That whole concept of, of fluency as authenticity is just yeah, what is the authentic? What is yeah. the authentic self? Like, yeah, I was thinking when we were working with the process of working on fluency, I don't want to be reduced to one language. Right. Are you going to find where? Where are you going to find me? I, I'm, I'm not going to. I don't believe that there's really that reducibility of myself into one single language that is the one that will retreat, like, that will help me retreat that authentic self. Or maybe it's just it's gone, or it's unfolding. That's what I prefer to say. That it's just happening. You know, my authentic self is happening. <laughs> it's always already happening. I wonder how this relates to character development. How do you cross the borders you find in language? Let us know. We want to hear from you. Comment on this podcast episode or message us on social media. If you're curious about anything you've heard here, you can find more information in the show notes for this episode on our website. We are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Egan, known to some as Lake Ontario in Toronto, or Duggarondo. This is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee, or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishinaabeg Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum and Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto Purchase. At Aluna, we remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial. Radio Aluna Teatro is produced by Aluna Theatre, with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, 
the Metcalf Foundation, and TD Bank. Aluna Theater is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shellness with Sue Ballin. Radio Aluna Theater is produced by Monica Garrido and Camila Diaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theater, visit us at alunatheater.ca, follow at Aluna Theater on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa.